For tonight, we are going to take a, a short break from Galatians. We've been studying through that letter, but we're going to take a break tonight, and we're actually going to be in the book of Haggai. Um, and so go ahead and open in your Bibles there. And uh, if you have trouble finding the book of Haggai, maybe you didn't realize this was a book in your Bible, you can turn first to Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and then flip back a few books. So Matthew, Malachi, Zechariah, and then Haggai. Okay? And uh, if you were with us at retreat a couple weeks ago, you know that Pastor Allen spent the weekend unpacking and preaching for us through this book. Um, and as you know, if you were there at retreat, we had to cut one of the sessions on Friday night. And so uh, we kind of actually ended on like a cliffhanger, right? We never uh, actually got to the last like three or four verses of this book. Um, and so that's what I wanted to do for us tonight. Uh, and yeah, so that's why we're in Haggai for tonight. And, and even if you weren't at retreats, um, I am going to spend a lot of time just reviewing what we learned. Uh, and so you're not going to miss out too much. I, I think there's a lot for us to learn from this book. You can think of this as just like one sermon on this entire book of Haggai. Um, and I think one thing that stands out to me from just this small Old Testament book, and, and maybe this was your experience um, at retreat, is just realizing how, how relevant and how sufficient and how timeless Scripture is, right, even for us today. And this is a really obscure, uh, not a frequently visited book in the Old Testament that we go to often, but as you guys probably saw, these are uh, just, it's convicting, right, to hear some of these messages and, and realize that these messages that, which were meant for this particular generation of people about their particular issues in their particular day, there's still things that we struggle with and there's still things that we need to hear. And I think even more than that, um, and this is what we'll really see at the end of Haggai, which is um, why I wanted to, to make sure we cover it. We're going to see that all of Scripture from the Old Testament to the New Testament is united. Right? It's, it tells one big story about God's kingdom and the gospel of Christ, his plan for us in Jesus Christ. Um, it reminds me of a verse in Romans 15, 4, where it says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So even this little book in the Old Testament was written for us. Right? Not written directly to us, but written for us. That through endurance and through the encouragement of Scripture, that we might have hope. Um, and so that's my prayer for us tonight. Um, why don't I open with the word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Okay, so let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we recognize that it is timeless, that it is sufficient, um, it is authoritative, and uh, it, it knows us so well. Um, because, God, you made us, and you speak into our lives through Scripture. Um, and so I, I do pray that you would teach us tonight through your word, give us humble hearts, um, challenge us, convict us, and by your Spirit, would you lead us to change, to repentance, um, to really a, a serious consideration uh, of what you ask of us um, for our lives, um, that we might live more faithfully for you. And so do that now through the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Haggai. Haggai is the name of the prophet um, who God uses to deliver a series of messages to the people. Okay, that's what this book uh, encompasses. And there are four different messages 
And if you look through this book, it's actually pretty easy to outline the book because each of them is marked out very obviously for us. Um, it, you can kind of look for two like markers, okay? It's the phrase, the word of the Lord came, and then there, it gives like a specific timestamp, okay? And, and all of these four messages take place in the year 520 B.C. And you guys can see on your handouts, there is the outline for you. Uh, this is what Pastor Allen uh, gave us as well. Kingdom priorities, kingdom perspective, kingdom purity, and kingdom promise. And so we're just going to go through each of them. And hopefully the first three are, are review, because um, we did learn about those at retreat. But we'll jump in with kingdom priorities. Okay, kingdom priorities. Uh, who here remembers what was the situation in, in this book? Like, what was the specific command or task that God gave to the people through the prophet Haggai? You guys can just shout it out if you want. Yes, good job. Rebuild the temple. Yeah, exactly. And so let me, that's, that's kind of the basic situation, the basic command. How did we get here? Okay, so let me give you some dates. 586 BC. Who knows what happened in 586 BC? Anyone? It was a long time ago, so I understand. In 586 BC, the Jews, uh, the people of God, were conquered by this king named Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Okay? And they came in and they pillaged Jerusalem, which was the capital of Judah. They destroyed the temple and they took the people and they exiled them to Babylon. Okay? Far away to Babylon. That's 586 BC. In 539 BC, Babylon, which conquered Jerusalem or Judah, was conquered themselves by Persia. Okay, and by this guy named King Cyrus. And with this new rule, King Cyrus makes this decree which allows the Jews, who were formerly under Babylonian rule, to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Okay? And so this group of Jews, they go back and they rebuild the temple. And they start out well at first, but then it's not too long before that initial excitement, that zeal, that passion, it starts to sputter out. And maybe you guys can relate to that. Like you've started a project, maybe it was a New Year's resolution, and now it's like March, right? And it's like fizzled out, you're not doing it anymore. Maybe you started a house project or like a thousand piece puzzle or something, and it's still on your coffee table at home, right? Or your Bible reading plan. Or like I'm sure you can think of something like that. And there started to, on top of that, there started to be some opposition to their rebuilding efforts uh, from just people around them. And pretty soon, this work of rebuilding the temple just stopped altogether. And instead, the people ironically started to focus on building their own houses rather than God's house. Right? They were building their own houses while God's house remained unfinished. And so that's where we pick up in the beginning of Haggai. Um, Haggai comes in, this is 520 BC, and he tells the people, consider your ways. He says that in verse 5 of chapter 1 and verse 7. Consider your ways. It's an important phrase in this book. Uh, God basically says, I want your attention, right? I want you to think about what's happening right now. Do you remember why I brought you back here? Uh, if you look in verse 4 of chapter 1, it says, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? 
So in other words, is it right for you to focus on your own priorities, your own personal comfort, your own kingdom, rather than what God has told you to do, right? Rather than God's priorities and God's kingdom. And it's not that building their own houses was wrong, per se, right? It's not that, like, that act itself is sinful. But if you think about the parable of the soils, right? Jesus talks about the four soils. This is like the weeds and the thorns that just chokes out the word of God. Um, in that parable, Jesus calls it the cares of the world, right? Not, not like inherently wrong things, but they're things that distract. They're things that choke out the word of God. They're priorities that compete against the priori- priorities of God. And that's a convicting message for us too, isn't it? Because this is something that we all struggle with. Uh, it's so easy to get distracted from God's kingdom agenda. Right? To, to pursue our own wants, our own needs, rather than the things, things of God. And, and like these people in the book of Haggai, we put it on hold. Right? So, oh, we'll, we'll get back to it later. And I think uh, just for you guys as college students, I think it's particularly challenging uh, for a number of reasons. I think, I think first off, it's very tempting to just view your time in college as like this special season of your life where you're just exempt from following God. Right, where you're just exempt from like, applying all that God has told you in, in his word. You think to yourself, well, it's not a good time, right? or it's not a good season. Maybe later on, maybe when I graduate. Um, on one hand, college is maybe the first time that, that you have your own freedom, you have your own independence, you're, you're out from under your parents' roof, uh, you have your own car, you can do whatever you want with your time. And so, like, experiencing that for the first time, especially with COVID, right, like, you just feel compelled to pursue the things that you want to do, because, like, you've never done this before. And then on the other hand, college is like this, almost like prologue to the rest of your life, or it's easy to see it that way, right? It's, it's before I, like, get my career, it's before I settle down, before I have a family or figure out where I'm going to spend my life. And this in-between time, and you look at it as this like, in-between time before everything is figured out. And so you, you tell God, okay, not yet. Right? I'm, I'm a student. I'm busy. I have exams. I don't have money. I don't have a car or my own place. Uh, I'll get to it later once I have my life figured out, once I have it established and I'm settled. Like later on, not now. And maybe you guys can relate to that. Right? Maybe you feel the, bo- the pull of both of those things. That's one reason I think this is convicting for us, especially for you guys as college students. I think another reason um, this is convicting or challenging is because when you think about who Haggai was talking to, he was actually talking to those who were relatively devoted. Okay, these were uh, actually the godlier people, you can say. And I think we'll see this even more in our third message, or the third point. But, but realize, when Cyrus gave his decree, when he told the, the Jews, hey, you can go back to Jerusalem, there was about 50,000 Jews who returned, who said, okay, we'll go back and we'll, we'll try to rebuild. And that might seem like a lot, right? 50,000 people like going back to their homeland. But actually, the majority of those who were exiled, they stayed in Babylon. I mean, it had been 50 years, right, since they were exiled. They were taken out of their homeland. 50 years of living in Babylon, uh, like building their lives there. And so many of them had grown old. Many of them even had kids. Some of them had passed away, and their kids are, are there now living. Those who stayed behind were content. They were, were comfortably settled in Babylon. And so those who went 
those are the ones who are extra committed. Those are the ones who are extra devoted. And, and like we said, they started out well, right? But what happened? Well, it was just this subtle drift. It was a, a weariness. It was persecution setting in. It was the allure of personal comfort. And maybe you guys can relate to that. Because it's kind of easy to just live off of, you know, I, I did this for God in the past, right? I used to serve in this way, or I've done this in the past before. And we don't realize just how much we've drifted. Right? We don't realize, oh, like, what are my priorities right now in actuality? Like, where have I ended up spiritually right now? Um, I'm always reminded of uh, this quote by D.A. Carson when it comes to, to drifting. He says, People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, and obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. Right? The natural direction of our hearts is to drift away from God, away from godliness, away from holiness. And so what God does here to, to rouse and to wake his people and what he often does is he sends his word. Right? He sends someone to preach, to, to proclaim the word, and he does it through the prophet Haggai. And how do the people respond? Look in verse 12. It says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Uh, jump to verse 14. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So this is 23 days later. Okay, 23 days later, after Haggai's first message to the people, what do they do? They, they repent. And they get back to work. And I, I want you to think about this. Retreat was 14 days ago. Okay, where you heard, where you were, did I get that right? It is 14 days ago, right? Okay, 14 days ago, where you heard and where you were challenged from the word of God. How have you responded to it? Have you done anything with that? I mean, has any change, any action taken place? Now, I know that, that change is often slow. Like I, I remind that to you guys often. We need to know that. Change is slow. And the point of preaching is not just, hey, like, I want you to do something. Right? That's not my goal. But I think we do have to ask, okay, are you responding to the word of God? Are you obeying the proclamation of God's message? I mean, as, as James says, am I not just a hearer, but am I a doer of the word? And God speaks. He calls them to repentance, and the people repent. Is that the picture of our lives? So that's kingdom priority. Second is kingdom perspective. Kingdom perspective. So the people, they do respond. They get back to rebuilding. Um, but pretty soon, they kind of sputter out again. Uh, but only this time, it's not their misplaced priorities that is the biggest obstacle, but it's their discouragement, okay? It's their perspective, um, chapter 2, it starts, and it says, in verse 1, it's the seventh month on the 21st day of the month. And so, Pastor Allen kind of gave the background of this, but uh, if you remember, this day would have been the final days of, after like kind of weeks of celebration, right? Like multiple different feasts and festivals, 
And specifically, the 21st day of the seventh month would have been the last day of the Feast of, Tra- Feast of Tabernacles. And what you need to know about that is that specific feast is this remembrance of God's provision for Israel in the wilderness. Okay? Uh, it was also during the Feast of Tabernacles, about 440 years earlier, that the first temple, Solomon's temple, was dedicated. Okay, so this is a significant day. Um, and so, in other words, why that is significant here is because this occasion would have been like rubbing salt in the wound of just like how things were currently. I think maybe an example of this is, imagine you've just been dumped by your boyfriend or girlfriend and it's Valentine's Day. And it's like, oh man, it like extra hurts. Right? Because it's, there's reason, there's significance to that day and just what's happening right now. And so as the temple is starting to come together, uh, this older generation who was around, who, who had seen the first temple, they realized that this new temple is not going to be as glorious as the first one. If you look in verse 3, Haggai says, is it not as nothing in your eyes? That's how they looked at it. Like this is a shack, right, compared to the temple that we knew. And so they start to think back to the good old days when things were better and they wonder, okay, like what's the point of this? Why are we doing this? It's not going to be as good. Look at what God says in verse 4. He says, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Um, You can stop right there. Be strong, work, right? Why? God says, for I am with you. For I am with you. Be strong, work, keep doing what you're doing. How does God's presence, right? For I am with you, that's the reason. How does God's presence change things? How does it motivate us? Well, I think two things. One, it reveals who or what we're really after. Okay, it reveals who or what we're really after. I think we have to ask the question, is God's presence enough? If God says, I am with you, is that enough for us, right, to keep being faithful, to keep doing what God has called us to do? If it's not, then we have to ask ourselves, are we working and obeying and doing with some other end in mind? Right? Maybe, like, you're driven by better circumstances, or maybe you see God, like, doing a favor to us in return. Maybe you're trying to gain the approval of others. Maybe you're, you're serving God with some other end in mind. If God says rebuild and it seems like nothing comes from it, is that still enough for us to obey? If God says commit to and love the church and your grades suffer, is that still enough for you to obey? If God says be content in your singleness, right? Learn contentment, serve one another, steward that well, and the relationship never comes out of it, is that still enough for you to obey? Or do you feel like God owes you something? Do you feel like he hasn't fulfilled your plans? He hasn't met your expectations? So it shows us who or what we're really after, but I think more than that, God's presence means that we cannot judge things based on what we see, right? We can't judge things only based on what you can see. Um, I like how Zechariah 4.10 puts it. Zechariah was kind of a contemporary with Haggai, so this is around the same time. And in Zechariah 4.10, he says, do not despise the day of small things. Okay, do not despise the day of small things. Basically, what you see right now is not the whole picture, right? What you see right now is not the entire story. 
And we get a glimpse of that in verses 6 to 9 of chapter 2. We get this picture of God shaking everything, right? The, uh, the heavens, the earth, the sea, the dry land, uh, including the nations. What is in here? Sorry, that's weird. I think it's picking up the signal from out there. Um, but it says, So that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory. Uh, God says, It might not seem like it right now, right? but verse 9 the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. That is what is coming later. But right now, Haggai is reminding them, you were in the day of small things. And Beacon, I want you to realize like that is what most of our days are made up of. Right? Sure, in college you have, you make some pretty important decisions. I don't want to minimize that. But like most of your day, most of your week is made up of small things. Right, going to class, studying, working, going to church, serving, daily quiet times, small acts of obedience, putting sin to death, um, moments of confession and repentance. I mean, those are all small, ordinary things. But you have that kingdom perspective right, to, to fortify, to strengthen you, to continue to obey, to continue to be faithful. Do you realize that what you see and have right now may seem ordinary, might seem unspectacular, might not even seem as good as the other person's? But how might God use that day of small things in ways that are bigger and greater than you can imagine? So that's kingdom perspective. Third, kingdom purity. Okay, kingdom purity. So his, uh, his third message begins in uh, verse 10 of chapter 2. And this message takes place on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius. Okay, and um, you don't have to turn there now, but if you, if you look back at chapter 1, verse 15, on the 20th, uh, in that verse it says, on the 24th day of the, sixth, uh, of the month in the sixth month, if you do some math between that, that first, or yeah, when they repent, and now in this third message, um, this is actually the three-month anniversary. Yeah, the three-month anniversary of when the people restarted work on the temple. And in fact, in this third message, if you look in verses 15 and 18 of chapter 2, Haggai is going to tell the people at least a couple times, consider from this day onward. Okay, Consider from this day onward as if this is uh, like a turning point. This is a monumental day that I want you to remember. Uh, this is the day I want you to kind of see as like this is when you dedicated yourself to God's work. You're, you're officially all in on this temple thing. And so from this point forward, Haggai wants to remind them of this really important truth as they continue with the work of rebuilding. And for the third message, it's not so much that he needs to convince these people to start doing something. That's the first message. right? It's not that they need to keep doing something. That's the second message. But it's something they needed to remember in their doing. As they are doing, as they are rebuilding, here is something you need to remember. And so just kind of an example for us, if Haggai were preaching to us, uh, this third message wouldn't be like trying to convince someone to start going to church. Uh, it wouldn't be, uh, hey, can you like keep serving, right? Don't be discouraged, keep serving. Rather, it would be spoken to those of us who are here every single week who are fully engaged and involved in the ministries of the church, the people who are serving week in and week out. And so what does he have to say to people like us? Well, he says, as you are participating in God's work of rebuilding the temple, 
I want you to realize that there is a greater work that God is more concerned about. It's not the work of your hands, but the work on your hearts. Okay, not the work of your hands, but the work on your hearts. Why are you doing what you're doing? That's the question. And to, to illustrate this, Haggai tells this, uh, or gives this illustration of priests and uh, ritual cleanness and uncleanness. If you look in verses 11 to 13 of chapter 2. And the point of his illustration is, uh, is that holiness cannot be passed on, but defilement can. Okay? Holiness cannot be passed on, but defilement can. So when you have a clean thing and an unclean thing, and they come into contact, what happens? That clean thing becomes unclean. Right? It becomes defiled, corrupted, not the other way around. And I, I think we understand this, right? A sick person doesn't get better simply by being around other not sick people, right? Other healthy people. Uh, it's actually the opposite, right? A sick person gets other people sick. Um, and as Pastor Allen said, like COVID, right? It's like an obvious, obvious example of that. And so that's the illustration. Here's his point in verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with these people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now, before Haggai had even come in with these messages, I think this is kind of a struggle that the people had. See, when they first returned to Jerusalem, when they restarted work on the temple, um, they laid the foundation, and uh, they did accomplish some stuff. They did rebuild some things. Um, and, and one of the things they did rebuild was an altar. You can read about that in Ezra 3, 1 to 6. Why did they rebuild an altar? Well, because they thought to themselves, you know what, as, we, as long as we offer sacrifices, like we're good. As long as we do this, I think God will be happy with us. And that is exactly what this third message is speaking against. He says, don't think that doing this one holy thing, rebuilding the house of God, don't think that that makes you holy. Don't think that hanging around holy people makes you holy. Rather, you ought to realize your unholiness, your uncleanness, your sin is going to defile everything else that you do. Um, I like how one commentator put it. He said, if people are not right with God, their religion will reflect their character, not change it. And so God is not, uh, he's not most concerned with the task of building the temple. He's not most concerned with what we do. He's most concerned with the people who are doing it, right? The people who are building it. That's always been what he's most concerned about. The people, the kind of person that you are, the state of your heart, rather than the things, even the good things that you do. Because I know many of you are doing lots of things. I know many of you are doing lots of good and godly things, but why are you doing what you are doing? I mean, have, you, have you fallen into the thinking that the things you do equals who you are, right? Because like, I do all these things, I have these things on my schedule, like that's who I am, right? I, I must be a good person. In your doing, is your heart and your relationship with God something that you are constantly aware of? Is it something that you are constantly cultivating and protecting? Is there space in your life for others to check your heart? Right, to speak truth to you? 
What is the pattern? What is the picture of the Christian life? And I think that's a big question to answer. There's many good answers we could give to that. But is it just doing more and more things for God? Is it just like, oh, as I mature, I'm just going to serve in more and more ways? Is it just I'm going to accumulate more spiritual accolades and achievements? Right? I'm just leveling up as a Christian. No, that's not the picture. That's not the pattern of the Christian life. Here's one answer to that question. This is from Martin Luther, the reformer. This is actually the first of the 95 theses that he nailed to the church door uh, in Wittenberg, the, the Protestant Reformation. This is the first thing on that list. It says, when our Lord Jesus said, repent, he meant that the whole of the Christian life should be repentance. And so what is the, what is the pattern, what is the picture of the Christian life? It's Repentance. It's, it's a continual turning away from sin and turning toward Christ. It's this increasing awareness of my own personal and specific weaknesses, my own personal specific temptations and sins. It's this growing desperation for the grace of Christ. Right? I need Christ. I need his grace. I need to turn to him. I, mean, I think realizing that that is the picture of the Christian life ought to be what our lives look like that keeps us from becoming the kind of people who Haggai is talking about. Right? People who just think, oh, I'm good if I do these things. Rather, our good works, they become the overflow of a good heart. Right? They become a fruit of a good heart. So that's kingdom purity. And then lastly, kingdom promise. This is the fourth and final message in Haggai. This is the part that we didn't get to at retreat. Uh, but the word of the Lord comes a second time on that same day, and I think something that makes this final message uh, distinct and special is if you look at who it's addressed to. Okay, what does it say in verse 21? God says, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. So in many of these other previous three messages, God is speaking to either all of uh, the people uh, collectively, or sometimes he's speaking just to like Zerubbabel and and uh, to do letters. But in this one, he speaks specifically to Zerubbabel. He gets personal, and I think it's this is just a side note, but I think it's just so gracious of God to do that. Right, that ought to encourage our hearts that God reaches into the fine details, the nitty gritty of our lives. He speaks to us into our circumstances. And if you look in verses 21 to 22, his message is similar to what he said earlier in verses 6 to 9. You might notice some of the same language. Verse 21, he says, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. So similar to what he did earlier in chapter 2, he's talking about this cataclysmic, eschatological day in the end when God is going to come, he's going to judge and turn everything upside down. Right? He's going to overthrow kingdoms, overthrow nations and rulers, armies will fall. And I want you to imagine what those words would have sounded like to Jewish ears. Overthrow kingdoms, right? overthrow thrones and other nations, if you're a Jew, you are a conquered people right now. You had just been uh, conquered by Babylon. Now you are under Persian rule. You were probably doubtful of God's promises to you as a nation. I mean, hearing something like this would have been amazing, maybe even unbelievable. 
Now, I think this is similar to what we said earlier with Haggai's second message about kingdom perspective. What is the antidote to those who are discouraged? What is the antidote to those who are hopeless, those who have trouble recognizing and remembering God's glory in their everyday work and circumstances? Well, you give them a bigger picture of God's glory. You give a bigger picture of the story that's actually taking place. That's what Haggai does here. Now, how does Zerubbabel fit into all of this? Remember, he's speaking directly to him. Uh, Let me tell you a little bit about who Zerubbabel was. He was the governor of Judah, okay? And uh, he was appointed by King Darius. So Darius was the one who, who came after Cyrus. He was appointed by Darius to oversee the rebuilding of the temple. And that might not mean much to us, um, but here's what you need to know. He is the governor, and he's not the king. Why is he not the king? Because Judah is under another nation's rule. There was no king. They were just this vassal state under the rule of the Persians, but he should have been king. He had royal blood. His grandfather was named Jehoiachin, or a Jeconiah or Kaniah. He actually has a few different names that he's referred to in Scripture. Uh, and Jeconiah uh, was the king of Judah shortly before the Babylonians took over. If you have time later, you can read from 2 Kings 24, uh, verses 8 to 16, 2 Kings 24. And you can read about when Nebuchadnezzar takes him into exile, when he surrenders to him. Zerubbabel is kind of a funny-sounding name, but it means something. It means offspring of Babylon or seed of Babylon because that's what he was. He was a child of Babylon. He grew up in exile. And so it's almost even like his, his own name just taunted him, right? A reminder of his family's failure, of unfulfilled promises because of uh, his, his grandfather's sin. Now turn to Jeremiah 22. Jeremiah 22, God, in this chapter, God delivers a message of judgment to Kaniah. So that's, that's the same person, okay, Kaniah. Because of their idolatry, God is going to give them over into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, right? So they're about to be taken into exile. Uh, read, look at verse 24. Let's, let's start reading there. As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those of whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. Um, You can jump down to verse 30. It says, Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. The significance of verse 30 is because of the Davidic covenant. Right? God had made a promise that someone would always be sitting on the throne of David. Well, in this passage that we just read, God tells Kaniah, even though you were the signet ring on my right hand, um, a signet ring was a symbol of a king's authority. Okay? Uh, God says, even though you were the signet ring on my right hand, because of your sin, I am going to tear you off of my finger. I'm going to take away uh, my blessing, and I'm going to take away your throne. And in verse 30, he says, none of your offspring is going to sit on the throne again. Now, this isn't a perfect analogy, but 
um, I think the point still gets across, right? It, it'd almost be like if I took off my wedding ring and I just like chucked it, right? I'm not going to throw it, obviously. Like what kind of message would that send if I just threw my wedding ring across the room? I'd be saying like it's over. Like we, we shared this, this really personal and special covenantal relationship, but now I am cutting you off. You're, you're no longer part of me. And that's what happened. Right? After Kenaya's generation, the throne is no more. We just talked about that Davidic covenant. Now, with all of that in mind, look back in Haggai. Haggai 2. Verse 23. It says, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So God turns to Zerubbabel. He's fully aware of the sins of his fathers. He's fully aware of the sins of his people. He's fully aware even of uh, Zerubbabel's own personal sin. And what does he do? He renews that covenant. He says, I will take you, I will make you like a signet ring. And even more than that, you see those two words right next to Zerubbabel's name? It says, my servant. That is Davidic covenant language. Okay, the Davidic covenant was this unconditional promise from God that he would establish a king from the line of David who would reign forever. And in these verses, God says, that promise still stands. I'm going to reverse what I told to Kaniah. And it's not because of your obedience, but because what? Just for I have chosen you. Because of God's own faithfulness, because of his own gracious word. Now, what ends up happening to Zerubbabel? In Ezra 6, 13 to 18, you can turn there, or you don't have to turn there now, you can read later. Ezra 6, 13 to 18. This is around the year 516 BC. Okay, the temple is finally rebuilt. It's the day of dedicating the temple. And what's interesting is that for someone as significant, for someone as instrumental as Zerubbabel was in the construction of the temple, his name is actually not mentioned. He's actually kind of missing from that passage. And and scholars don't know exactly what happened to him. Maybe he went back to Babylon. Maybe he actually passed away between when the temple was finished and when it was dedicated. And so is that the end of the story for Zerubbabel? Right, like just like that, like he's gone. I mean, what are you thinking if you are one of the people of Judah and you're just watching all of this go down? You have all of this fanfare, uh, this really like monumental repentance, uh, rededication to God, a renewal of God's covenant promise to your leader, your governor, and then not too long afterwards, Zerubbabel's gone. And yeah, sure, like circumstantially, things are maybe a little bit better. The temple's there, it's rebuilt. But I imagine if you're just watching all of this, it would be tempting to think, okay, so like, where are we with God again? Like, what happened to his promise? Zerubbabel's gone. And maybe for some of you tonight, that is your experience of trusting in God. Like, you have ups and downs, hills and valleys, some glimpses of hope and potential, and it seems like things are going well, and then all of a sudden, you're right back where you started. You're like, God, like, can I trust you still? 
Maybe it's a promising dating relationship that ends abruptly or like grades or your internship, your future, or even just a nice community of friends or your, even your health. Like all of a sudden it's, sudden, it's taken away. Begin God's promise, his word is greater than that. Right? It is more sure, more trustworthy. It's more glorious. His story is a better story. It's greater than our circumstances and even our failures. Here's how we see this in our passage. Zerubbabel's name does come up again. It's not at the dedication of the temple, but this time it's actually in the New Testament. Specifically, it's in Matthew 1, 12 to 13. If you know what Matthew 1 is, it's the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, why is genealogy important? All right, why does it matter to know like so-and-so was the father of so-and-so was the father of so-and-so? It's not just historically, right, to give us an account of the generations of people, but there's a theological purpose behind these genealogies. It's to show us this is how God works. This is the kind of people that God includes in his story. And so how would God's promise to Zerubbabel be fulfilled? Well, it would be fulfilled through him. Sure, Zerubbabel himself might not be the one to realize those promises, but through him, God would get to the one who would. It was through Zerubbabel, the failed king, the guy who never got to be king, that we would get to Jesus, who is the perfect king. It's not even just this specific promise that God makes to Zerubbabel here at the end. If you think back to earlier in chapter 2, verse 9, God had promised, right, that the latter glory of this house, this second temple, shall be greater than the, for, than the former. He had said that the second temple will surpass the first, Solomon's temple. How will it be greater? And if you think about it, this like older generation, they had legit reasons to, to mourn, to grieve that their temple was not the same as before. I mean, they just weren't like old cranky people who were just mad for no reason, okay? They, like this temple actually objectively was not uh, on the surface as great as that first temple. I mean, for one, the, the first temple had the Ark of the Covenant, and that had, that's gone now. When the first temple was dedicated, the people witnessed for themselves God's Shekinah glory descend and, and light the fire on the altar and fill the temple. Um, you can read, that, read about that in 2 Chronicles 7. God himself like, visibly fills the first temple when it's dedicated. I mean, how is Zerubbabel's temple supposed to surpass that? Like, where is God's glory? It's not descending. They can't see it. In the New Testament, there's a scene where Jesus is walking past the temple in John 2. And and he says uh, to the people who are with him, he says, destroy the temple and I will raise it up again in three days. And he was talking about like even a greater uh, Herod temple. Okay, And the people are confused Because Jesus wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about himself. He's the temple. Back in John 1.14, this is um, a famous passage on the incarnation. We read it often at Christmas or Advent. John 1.14, speaking of Jesus, it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the idea of tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you, get, do you see what I'm getting at? God no longer meets his people in the temple, but in his Son, Jesus Christ. 
He draws near to us in his son, Jesus Christ. That's why the second temple was more glorious than the first. And how near to us does he come? Well, in Mark 1, 40 to 45, there is this really amazing account of this account, encounter between Jesus and this man with leprosy. We, we preached from this um, earlier this past summer. Uh, much like many of Jesus' other miracles, someone comes up to Jesus, this man with leprosy, and he says, uh, if you will, Jesus, you can make me clean. You guys remember what happens? It says that Jesus was moved with pity. He stretches out his hand, and he touches the man, and he tells the leper, I will be clean. And immediately, that passage says, the leprosy left him, and the man was made clean. Now, I think it's easy to miss this, but it's not supposed to work that way. Right? We, we just read about this in Haggai, the illustration that Haggai gave. Right? Something unclean defiles something that is clean. When Jesus touched the leper, he should have been defiled. He should have been made unclean. But what happened? The unclean is made clean instead. Haggai said, if your hearts are defiled, you're going to defile everything that you touch. I mean, our sin separates us from God. It creates distance. The only way that you can be made clean, the only way you can be given new hearts, the only way that God can come near and you can meet with him is through Jesus Christ. I mean, isn't that cool to see how this little Old Testament book, all of these circumstances, like over 2,000 years ago, speak into the story of our own lives today. But not only that, we see how this book fits into this greater story of God's plan of salvation through Jesus Christ. Right? All of that is pointing ahead to Jesus Christ. I know that was a, a quick flyover of Haggai, but let me just try to connect the dots. I'll give you just one big takeaway okay, that we're meant to learn from this book. And it's this, that the kingdom of God is so much bigger, so much more glorious than our own little kingdoms. I, mean, it's, I think it's a pretty simple idea. We hear it often. The kingdom of God is so much bigger and more glorious than our own little kingdoms. Do you live with an awareness that your life is just a small, small, small part of something, so much bigger than just yourself and your own comforts and your own circumstances? See, when we, when we like shrink our world and our vision and our perspective to the size of just our own individual lives, then of course, pursuing something like personal comfort will be more appealing. And of course, that will be the most important thing to us rather than serving God, rather than sacrificing for him. When we shrink our world to just ourselves, of course, difficult circumstances, unmet expectations, and lack of results will cause us to be discouraged. But when we remember that the glory and kingdom of God is so much bigger than that, then we are compelled to trust and to obey and to work and to rest in his promise. College students, I think one of the most important and valuable truths that you can learn, that you can just be utterly convinced of, is that your life is so much bigger than just yourself. To have just that humble self-awareness and a big view of the glory of God. And yet, that doesn't just like, make us feel small, although it should, but it ought to give us hope. Because that means that we are swept up into God's bigger story. That means it doesn't depend on us. That means we don't have to control everything. That we can just commit to the small things, to being faithful to what God has called you to do. 
We trust. We trust that God will be faithful to what he has promised to do. And so the book of Haggai teaches us this. Commit to God's kingdom work. Obey him and trust him. Be faithful to what is right in front of you, the task that God has given to you right here and right now. As you work, make sure you are paying attention to your own hearts because that's what God cares about the most. As you work, keep with it, stick with it. Don't judge things based on what they appear because even if it seems little and unimpressive and imperfect, we can trust that God can and will do more with it for his glory than we can ever imagine. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for teaching us uh, through your word, and we confess that we have just such a small view of our own lives, such a small view of your kingdom, uh, what we are here for, and so we ask that you would enlarge it, that you would show us just the glory uh, of your son, Jesus Christ, how you have swept us up into the gospel story. Uh, We ask that you would show us just even the, the ordinary little parts of our lives that are significant to you, the little parts that you want to take and use uh, for your glory and for your kingdom cause. And so give us that humble self-awareness, give us that faithfulness, um, that obedience to trust in you. Uh, I pray for just a a fruitful small group discussion now. Um, We thank you, God, just again for tonight, our time together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.